Peter Kremlin, live on Sky News Australia. Good evening and welcome to the show. Great to have your company again. Let's have a look at what's making news right around the country. The Prime Minister ramps up his attack on Anthony Albanese over China after Beijing's propaganda mouthpiece painted the Labor leader as their pick for the lodge. Woke financier Simon Holmes Accord insists Climate 200 isn't a political party as he addressed the National Press Club today. One Liberal who's facing a challenge from this mob says he's had enough. He's going to take them head on. Join me tonight. He'll tell you what Holmes Accord had to say and why it matters. Renewables fail. A $40 million wind turbine comes crashing down during a storm. Not enough wind a couple of months ago. Now way too much. Mark Latham will weigh in on that shortly. And fresh from destroying Victoria's economy, Premier Daniel Andrews announces a bid for the 2026 Commonwealth Games. But can the state even afford it? The Victorian Government has just signed an exclusive negotiation agreement with the Commonwealth Games Federation uh, to host the 2026 Commonwealth Games. What that means is that exclusively the organisers and the, the owners of the Commonwealth Games will work with us. Drowning in debt, bread and circuses, that's how it goes, isn't it? But, but first, down in the polls and with an election just weeks away, Prime Minister Scott Morrison would like national security to be front and centre. And if voters really were focused on Australia in 10 or 20 years' time, national security is where their focus would naturally fall, rather than on a virus that we've all but come to terms with. There's no doubt that the government has a very good record on national security. And there's no doubt that Labor doesn't. After it cut funding to intelligence agencies when last in office, failed to make any major defence hardware acquisitions, and as we know, from the Sam Dastiari scandal, said one thing about China to the domestic media and quite another thing to their staged Mandarin-speaking media events. Yesterday, the Chinese government mouthpiece, the Global Times, as I said, endorsed Anthony Albanese as China's preferred candidate in the upcoming election. To say that's not a good look, well, that'd be an understatement. Not something that Labor would want at this time, almost as unwelcome as Peter Van Onselen backing them to win the election, given his past record on predictions. But that's where we land tonight, with national security now a key election issue, with a government that I know will ramp up the fight if I know the coalition. There's more today out in the media, commentators and others warning against a khaki campaign, with a whole lot of Labor frontbenchers out on cue in the media trying to shame the government against spruiking its credentials with some even trying to imply that there's something improper here, that somehow defence and national security must be a bipartisan issue. Now, that's rubbish. The Coalition is right to campaign on its strong national security credentials, just like Labor runs on its health and education credentials. And when Labor's record has been poor, border protection's a potent example, that Australians deserve to be told the likely consequences of a vote for the government versus a vote for the opposition. Labor's China problem isn't a line worked up in a coalition focus group or a handy election slogan. It's borne out by the recent material put into the public domain by the Director-General of Australia's domestic spy agency, ASIO, by the sacking of former Senator Dastiari, by the over-the-top pro-Beijing rhetoric of former leaders like Bob Carr and others, 
And even the intervention of one of their own backbenchers, the China Hawk, Senator Kimberly Kitching, in estimates this week. However disappointing some Conservatives might feel the government has been in other areas, its record on national security has been little short of stellar. It stopped illegal migrant boats. It boosted defence spending to 2% of GDP. Australia led the world in keeping the Chinese telco giant Huawei out of vital national infrastructure. We had the courage, didn't we, to call for an impartial international investigation into the real genesis of the Wuhan virus. We didn't flinch when China weaponised trade against us, boycotting some $20 billion worth of our exports. Then there's the revitalised quad linking the Indo-Pacific key democracies. By far the Prime Minister's greatest achievement today is AUKUS, the deal to acquire nuclear-powered submarines, even though I know a lot could go wrong before they're in the water under an Australian flag, at least he's got us to the position where a powerful strategic deterrent is on the horizon. Then there's the Status of Forces Agreement, just finalised with Japan, that enables our military to be based there and their military here, that will underpin much deeper military cooperation with East Asia's most powerful democracy. No Western country has been more level-headed and more effective than Australia in responding to the security challenges of this post-American century. Now, whether voters will reward that because they worry about a left-faction Prime Minister and the likes of failed Premier Christina Keneally running home affairs, well, that's yet to be seen, isn't it? Yet another busy day in the nation's capital, Trudy McIntosh, Sky News political reporter, is there with the headlines. Good evening to our top stories in Cabra. Labor has accused the Prime Minister of attempting to create a dangerous and desperate distraction on national security ahead of the election. For another day, the coalition painted Anthony Albanese as soft on China, claiming Beijing would prefer to see a Labor government in power. The arbiter of that is the Chinese government themselves, Mr Speaker, who has picked their horse and is sitting right there. Labor erupting in question time after this controversial claim from the Prime Minister. Minister We've got another Manchurian The opposition argues national security should be above partisan politics. It is not only desperate, but it is very much not in Australia's national interest. What this government is saying to our allies is that if there is a change of government, Australia is no longer a good ally. And that is totally irresponsible. Labor has sidestepped the government's attempted political wedge on deportation changes, declaring it won't stand in the way. The Immigration Minister has revived the stalled push to strengthen changes to the character test. The move is blatantly designed to pressure Labor on law and order. And today we're setting a test for the Leader of the Opposition, Anthony Albanese, but join the government, show the Australian community that he has the same commitment to public safety and support the bill. While Labor has previously opposed the legislation, it now wants to help move the fight to the Senate. Uh, Labor will not oppose this bill in the House of Representatives. They need to decide, do they want to have a fight or do they want to have a fix? And if there's a problem they want fixed, our door remains open and this can be resolved. That Senate stoush may never happen, with only two scheduled sitting days left before the election campaign. Because it isn't good enough 
to hide in your office and put this bill through on the voices and send it to the Senate, where you know we've run out of time potentially to pass this bill. And outgoing Liberal MP Nicole Flint has launched a stinging attack on the Labor leader in her valedictory speech to Parliament. The South Australian MP accused Anthony Albanese of failing to call out abuse directed towards Conservative women. The left of politics as a whole need to act. And that action needs to start right in this place with the leader of the opposition. Trudy McIntosh, Sky News, Canberra. Great speech there by Nicole Flint. All right, for their analysis on all the big stories making headlines today, let's bring in Wednesday night's dynamic joy from the Gold Coast, Sky News Queensland editor Peter Gleeson, and from Sydney host of Chris Smith tonight, Chris Smith. Okay, Chris, I'll start with you. I want to pick up the subject of my editorial. I'm going to call BS on this idea that defence and national security always must be bipartisan. It's bipartisan when the policies and the spending and the action are shared across the two major parties. But there is a big divergence, and I've seen the, the loss of funding to intelligence agencies and the fact that Labor didn't put any kit out there uh, when they were in government. If, if the policies and the performance are not bipartisan, the Prime Minister and the government are right. This is a fair game issue for the election. Absolutely fair game. And you've seen the way Labor has reacted this week. It's like in dental parlance, they are going through root canal therapy right now. It hurts big time. And it's a little bit more than just a national security issue, which has, you know, historically of late been about protecting the, 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 and keeping people safe from terrorism mainly. Or it's a, it's a foreign affairs issue, which is usually about, you know, foreign aid to other countries. This is a foreign affairs issue, a national security issue, and also an issue of trade. It's affected so many consumers and so many businesses, the kind of attitude that mm -hmm. China has had to Australia. So it not only cuts really deep with the community, it, it exposes the history of the tentacles of the Labor Party into China. And I don't know, I, I said on Twitter earlier this week, I just reckon what the Global Times has done in advocating for an Albanese government to run Australia and be China's friend again could have changed the trajectory of the outcome of this election. This is red hot. Absolutely. I think that's why, Gleeso, so many people today are trying to shut down the government from yes. spruiking its credentials. They know this is dynamite. Exactly, the quiet Australians out there. Why would we trust China on anything? These guys want to crush us. They showed last year with their tra trade sanctions. They showed with their bullying, their intimidation, when we dare question how did the coronavirus emerge, that they are not a country to be trusted. And, I mean, you know, they've jumped into bed with Russia. Uh, they have shown to the world that they are fair income about their geopolitical and their military uh, strategy, uh, particularly in the, uh, mm. in the South China Pacific Sea. And, 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 and I think Australians are quite rightly wary of any political party that cosies up to them. They're not a country that you cosy up to. Look, I want to go to the, the cloud that's hanging over the future of the Education Minister, Alan Targe. A lot of people have talked about this issue, but they actually don't know how staffing works. And I want, I want to point out a couple of things. We know it's been reported that Tudge allegedly sought to promote his former advisor, Rochelle Miller. Uh, he was having an undisclosed affair with her at the time. 
that's been spoken of. We haven't seen the report yet, but that's been spoken of, Gleeso, as a breach of the, the prime ministerial guidelines or the ministerial guidelines. Now, the PM's office are insisting no decisions being made on this, but I tell you, staff decisions are made in the end by the prime minister or the staff committee, but all positions... Mm. They're not vested in ministers, they're vested in the Prime Minister. And given this all occurred when Malcolm Turnbull was Prime Minister, mm. we know today it's reported that he knew about this affair. Now, if he knew about the affair, mm. the positions are vested in him, he allowed the Miller promotion to go ahead by the Staff Approval Committee, doesn't that get Tudge off the hook? Well... That's a very good question. I wouldn't think so. If he has breached ministerial conduct, and Peter, you know these rules better than anyone in the country, you achieve a staff to the Prime Minister, he is in a world of pain. But I guess at the end of the day, it's another distraction for the Morrison government as we head into the hotbed of an election environment. And I guess the, you know, the reality, the message here is if you are a minister and you want to have an involvement mm. with a, a staffer, Keep it in your pants. That's the bottom line. But Gleeson yeah, yeah. oh, no, been judged. Point. He was judged but, by his previous boss. That's my point. Yeah. That's my point. Well, if Malcolm Turnbull... But isn't it if semantics? It's important today that Malcolm Turnbull... No, no, no. But if Malcolm Turnbull is the boss, the positions are vested in him, it's reported today that he knew about the affair and he still allowed the promotion to go to this staffer knowing staffer and the boss were in an affair. If that's approved by the Prime Minister, how can any minister be breaking the Prime Minister's rules if the Prime Minister has sanctioned it? Absolutely. Well, it, 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 go ahead, Chris, Chris, because I think if, if Turnbull has t turned a blind eye, well, then th that's a game-changer. No, I just think he's been judged already. He's been judged by his own boss. Uh, by the Prime Minister's office. How can we then have an investigation that shows he was judged to be on safe ground to then go, well, we think in hindsight that that is not safe ground. You shouldn't be looking for a promotion of someone that you call your girlfriend and a staffer. Like, seriously. Now, it might go away if we, if we pushed Alan Tudge aside and therefore that, that very public squabble between he and her might stop. It might be a really convenient thing to do, but I don't think it's fair. You can't judge the bloke twice. Yeah, right. well, we'll see what'll happen. That report, as I said, is with the Prime Minister's office and we don't know the outcome for Tudge. Gleeson, I've got to ask you, this white elephant a quarantine facility outside of Toowoomba officially opened by the Premier today, but she refused in the media press conference, point blank, to tell Queensland taxpayers how much it's going to cost them. I mean, she's drowning in integrity uh, issues. They're paying for it. She won't tell them how big the cheque is. It's the old commercial incompetence line. $237 million. Uh, I'm happy for the Premier to deny it's that much, but that's the mail coming out of Cabinet. Uh, an absolute disgrace. The, it'll be the biggest white elephant. There are 60 people there at the moment. It holds 1,000. We've got another facility at Tingalpa, which has been built by the Feds. I mean, talk mm. about... And they did this uh, late last year when they were having cracks every day at the Commonwealth Government at Morrison over the way in which they were handling the coronavirus. Another example... I mean, we're only $100 billion in debt here in Queensland. What's another $237 million? <laughs> Well, come, come uh, down to Victoria, mate. The, Victoria's debt's hurtling towards $200 billion. Um, very tough uh, circumstances down here with the pandemic, but a lot of that debt was long in place before the pandemic. But Chris, today, 
They reckon they can find money for the Com Games. It cost seven hundred odd million dollars the last time they hosted it uh, two two or so decades ago. Is this a good spend for Victorians? Oh, gee, if I was a Victorian taxpayer, I'd be making sure that he dragged the Productivity Commission in and got a real bold case and a, a seal-tight, clear case that we can make money out of the Com Games, because seriously, do you really want to go out and spend... And he'll have to borrow the money if he has to do anything like mm. he's talking about, which is get out into the regions. Well, the regions don't have the sporting facilities that Melbourne has, so if he wants to do it in the regions, he's got to sign a lot of cheques, mm. and that's a lot of cheques from borrowed money. Like, seriously, give us a break. It better be ironclad that uh, Victoria will make money out of it. Well, I don't know about that, hey? They didn't in the Gold Coast. A lot of businesses felt uh, it was oversold and they didn't get the benefits at all. Chris Smith, Peter Gleeson, gentlemen, thank you for your time. Uh, just on the Malcolm Turnbull report too, that he knew about the affair as reported, that was to my colleague, Laura Jays. That was her scoop this morning, or credit to her. All right, let's move to that lacklustre National Press Club address from the woke financier and Climate 200 founder, Simon Holmes, a court this afternoon. Let's bring Liberal MP Jason Felinski. He's facing a challenge from a Climate 200 independent, his seat of McKellar on the northern beaches in Sydney, I tell you what, he's emerged this week as someone who's prepared to take the fight up to this Voices movement and he wants us to understand who they really are. Thank you for coming to me tonight from Canberra. Let's start with the, the comments from Simon Holmes of Court today insisting Climate 200, who of course are bankrolling seven of these independents, they're not a political party, he says. They're, they're in, you know, integrity's intact, they're very straightforward. Here he was getting grilled by my colleague in Canberra, Tom Connell. Let's have a listen. I'm going to ask about the $100,000 cheque. Uh, Zali Stegall effectively blamed the accountant, Damon, Damien Hodgkinson. Is he still a director at Climate 200? Um, this is an issue that was identified more than a year ago and resolved to the complete satisfaction of the AEC. Um, so we know... Yeah. Senator Andrew Bragg's job, he has been assigned to keep a watchful eye on everything we do. And it's kind of nice to have a guardian angel because it means that we, we dot every I and cross every T. Now, he's, he's made spurious claims to the AEC, which they have dismissed. Um, but as for Climate 200, we are scrupulous in our compliance with all of the regulations. And Damien's staying in the role? I have no problems at all with Damien staying in the role. He's an, he's an excellent controller. Well, Jason Falinski, is anyone buying that? Um, well, I'm not. I can tell you that right now. I mean, if this, if we apply the same standards that Simon Holmes' court applies to everyone else, he would be stepping down now, he would be repaying the money, and, I, frankly, I think that they would be under complete and utter investigation. Um, Damien Hodgkinson, by the way, his, his role in life is to structure assets for wealthy people like Simon Holmes' court so they avoid paying any more tax than they have to. And I just think if, if anyone in Australia today puts integrity and, um, and uh, Climate 200 and all these fake independents in the same sentence, it has to be with a question mark or an exclamation marker after the end of it, because this is just a joke. Before she came to the parliament, Zali Segal was a barrister. So you think if uh, anyone's going to get the detail right and what the rules are for oh, MPs, I know. it might be her. Yep. 
Well, Peter, it's beyond that. I mean, the whole idea that you accept a cheque for $100,000, having accepted the cheque for $100,000, you then deliberately separate it into eight separate payments, which just so happens to get you below the disclosure limit so that you can hide the fact that you received money or, in doing so, it hides the fact that you received money not just from someone who invested in coal mines but someone who is a director of a coal company that bought a mine from Eddie Obeid who also happens to have had an adverse finding from the New South Wales Independent Commission Against Corruption. Beggar's belief. You know, I watched that speech today, I've got to say, Peter, and Simon Holmes, of course, he's reminded me of someone for a long time and I just couldn't place it until I saw him today and it, it came to me. He is, to Australian politics, what Kendall Roy is to succession. Um, it is just another wealthy person who inherited their money trying to tell the rest of us what to do. What do you make of the fact that he seems to be getting a pretty soft run from the media, particularly the Canberra Press Gallery today, other than Tom Connell? It was, well, can I tell you, the softball of softball questions was from Catherine Murphy, who asked him, what does a scientific-led approach to climate change mean? Or, you know, can you tell us more about that? And, of course, he said, I, I don't really want to get into it. The problem for um, Simon Holmes Court and his fake independence is that they are fronted by slogans and every time you ask them a question about their slogan, there's another slogan that sits behind it. Um, I think Australia, their pro value proposition to the Australian electorate at the moment is we have no plans, no vision and, frankly, no ideas, but, hey, we did inherit a lot of money. Well, just on that point about inheriting a lot of money, the candidate running in the seat of Wentworth against Dave Sharma, the incumbent, Allegra Spender, daughter of Carla Zampatti, uh, she's got a lot of money in her bank account. She has a very sort of corporate background. But she's out there now saying there's got to be tax reviews and that's what she'd push for if elected. That sounds to me like a line she's got now uh, to excuse away her income if that becomes an issue in the campaign. Absolutely. And, and, you know, once again, no plan, no policy, no ideas. We'll just have a review. Is it, you know, is it, is it uh, I mean, this isn't, uh, this isn't, this is what they always say. Um, there's a slogan and when you ask for details, they'll say, oh, when elected, we'll do a review. And I, what, what's the bet that review includes a carbon tax? What, what's a bet that that review doesn't talk about how to cut taxes or make our tax system more efficient? What's the bet that that review involves increasing taxes for working Australians so that their life, so they don't have the same opportunity to accumulate the savings and assets that so many of Simon Holmes Court candidates already had because they were lucky to be born to someone who happened to be wealthy? Well, eventually the gloss came off Get Up, Jason Falinski, when people understood really what was behind the Get Up machine. Are you confident that people are going to wake up to voices if you're prepared and others had to take them head on? Look, Peter, I'm only doing this because I think that elections require the electorate to be well informed. And what we've seen over the last um, week is the fact that that is the one thing Climate 200 doesn't want to have. So when their largest donor happens to be a coal investor who bought his mine from Eddie Obeid, who's had an adverse finding at ICAC, what they, did they front up about it? Did they declare it as they were meant to? No, they tried to hide it. And when that didn't work because the AEC did an audit on it, the, um, you know, the result of that was, as Tom Connell asked quite directly, will you be therefore getting mm. rid of your shareholder, Damien Hodgkinson, who Zali Stegel is now blaming for this bookkeeping error, 
Um, and his answer is no, he's very comfortable with him. So the, the question that we get to is, what more are they hiding? You know, what more aren't they telling right. the Australian people? And, and that's, I think, what's I'm sure I'll be talking to you again. I'll be talking Good. to you again. Thank Sorry you. to cut you off. I've got to get into the break, but uh, we'll stay across this issue. Thank you for your time, Jason Falinski. All right, little break. Coming back, extraordinary pictures of a, a Welsh wind turbine that couldn't handle wind. My name is Manny Karoudis and I'm a former New South Wales policeman turned investigative reporter with a passion for missing persons cases. I'm here to quickly tell you about our True Crime Australia podcast, The Missing. In this series, I look at old missing persons cases which have all gone cold in an attempt to try and uncover new information which could help see these missing people reunited with their loved ones or any form of clue that could bring these families closure. The Missing is available now wherever you get your podcasts and early and ad-free on Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts. Welcome back. Busy show. Got to keep moving. Uh, the transition to the so-called net zero economy has come crashing to the ground quite literally. Earlier this week, a heavy storm caused a 300-foot tall wind turbine to snap apart on a mountainside in South Wales. We're going to have some no-holds-barred straight talk with our good friend for Woke Watch, Mark Latham, coming now. All right, we call this Woke Watch, Mark. These turbines don't work when the wind doesn't blow. They seem to break when there's too much wind. Not good enough. Well, Peter, around the world, most of the turbines and also the solar panels are made in China. And a lot of Chinese products have a pretty limited lifespan. Maybe this one is a victim of that. Um, it looks pretty dangerous. I don't know anyone on prime agricultural land who wants these wind turbines uh, littering the landscape and causing danger. There's proposals where I am now at Newcastle and also the central coast of New South Wales. They have thousands of wind turbines offshore, destroying the coastal views, destroying the coastal beauty, destroying coastal property prices. So. Um, the people who advocate these things don't recognise the, the danger they cause to the actual environment. And on top of that, um, again, around the world, wind turbines slaughter millions of birds every year, cut them to pieces. Uh, that doesn't seem to worry the, the Greens and the animal justice parties. They go on with it, even though it's now the main killer of birds uh, and other forms of wildlife in our country. Well, interestingly, Bob Brown, not so long ago, was violently opposed to one in the north of Tasmania. And we know that the wind turbines themselves, the motors on the, on the great shafts, well, they have a, a lifespan of about 20 years. There's no plans. I've never seen any plans to deal with the debris that's left behind when the turbines no longer work. Yeah, you can't recycle them. They go into landfill. For Bob Brown, I think it was blocking his view and he didn't like it. Well, at least there's one Green who's got a bit of an attachment to reality. Um, if these things are saving the planet, you can only say, God help the planet. Right, some woke nonsense inside the public service yet again. You've got your hands on a note to staff at New South Wales Transport. What does it tell us? Well, they've uh, mandated effectively these gender pronouns that on every signature block coming out of transport for New South Wales, it's got to be he, him, um, her, she, uh, with the pronouns listed. Doesn't seem to be much point to that. But, but Peter, this woke uh, lunacy 
uh, is just another distraction from a department that's already underperforming. In New South Wales, we have ferries that won't fit under bridges, trains that won't fit into tunnels, a light rail system that doesn't run, train strikes, trains that don't run on time, a reduced service for commuters everywhere because they scared everyone away with COVID. And the best this department can worry about are gender pronouns. I mean, these people, it's such an insult to the commuters. The commuters just want the transport department to do its day job, do the things about transport efficiency, service delivery, cost effectiveness, bring down the fares, run on time. Don't worry about the gender pronouns. As if, what, as if, if this is what they're doing on a daily basis, no wonder the transport system in New South Wales is falling apart. I tell you, when I get an email and someone's got gender pronouns on it, it almost tells me uh, their voting intentions. It tells me their politics, Mark. Well, this is being forced upon people. It's, it's come to me from staff objecting to it because they just want to do their day job. And, and, and Peter, it's got to be understood inside the New South Wales government, these are not traditional Liberals. These are green Liberals who want to force woke, so-called progressive politics upon people who go to work. There are some hard-working public servants dedicated to actual uh, customer service who just want to do their job. And they don't want to have to think about their gender pronoun. They don't want these things forced upon them. They want to get back to what a transport department should do, and that is have good delivery of services to the public. So for public servants, it's demoralising. It drives a lot of sensible mainstream people out. They get replaced by more of the woke and the cycle continues. There you go, Mark Latham. Nothing gets past you. Thank you for your time. All right, check in, check out. We've all been doing that, haven't we, for months and months and months. If you're anything like me, I'm sick of it. And I'm starting to say, what on earth is the point anymore? We know in New South Wales, they're talking about scrapping them. There's not much going on behind the scenes in terms of uh, contact tracing. Same in Victoria. So why are we all doing it? And why are businesses, more to the point, uh, wasting their time and effort with staff to enforce it? Let's bring in infectious diseases physician, Professor Peter Collignon. He might have some answers for us. Give us a sense, Professor Collignon, if, if we're not doing the contact tracing at the back end, why are we still being forced to QR code? Well, I think your point is valid. I mean, the main reason for doing QR code originally was so when we were going to, you know, suppression of COVID to really low levels, so that it would be, in theory, easier to find all those people that might be defined as close contacts so they could isolate. But we're not doing that anymore. Um, close contacts are the people you go and find yourself. The health department isn't doing that in any state, as far as I'm aware. The other reason may be if you go to high-risk venues, such as a bar or a pub, and, for instance, if there's a few hundred people there and the health department finds 50 or 60 are infected, well, that suddenly has become a super-spreader event, and you may let people know about that so if they develop any symptoms, they can go and get tested. But as far as I'm aware, the health departments aren't doing that either. So unless there's sort of a more obvious reason for the QR codes and how they're being useful, I would think it's a problem if mm. we mandate this and enforce it. There's, you know, a waste of time. People get resentful. And it is possible in the future we may need to do it again. Probably not. But we mm. should only do things where people obviously see the benefit for themselves or for the general community. And I think for QR coding at the moment, to enforce it, uh, most people can't see the advantage. And look, it makes people cranky. I think it destroys the goodwill. You make a good point, I think, very early on. We're all very happy to QR code. I think it was essential. It 
could well come back with another variant or, or another infectious plague down the track. But right now, it has absolutely no utility and I think it, it destroys goodwill. Well, I think it does. I mean, my own experience about a month ago in New South Wales in Sydney, I went to two Bunnings for only 10 minutes each. And for the next few days, I got messages, oh, there was somebody in that locality or that um, establishment that actually had COVID. Well, it didn't tell me whether it was one or 10 or whether it was staff members. So I couldn't make any real judgment decision on what that meant. In fact, I thought it was counterproductive. So look, there can be advantages, but we need much better targeting communication and what messages go out and essentially, the only message you want to go out now, this was a super spreading mm. your event you're at now because we know 50 or 60 other people out of a few hundred had it. But other than that, I can't really see the advantage. No, and I know in Victoria, they're not even listing sites where those things, those big oh. events have occurred. And that was scrapped before Christmas. So again, we'll see what happens and whether they'll clean up some of the regulation. Talk to me about the Premier, the Victorian Premier today. He's been forced to... Uh, basically back down, that's what it is. I think it's a, a significant back down. A government website was out there saying that you have to have three doses, so two in the booster, for parents to enter school buildings or attend events. Uh, they're not doing that now. He's made that change this afternoon. But give me a sense, are triple vaccine mandates necessary given where we are with the virus? Well, I think for the vast majority of situations, no. I think, again, it's counterproductive. You'll just you get people resenting it. The reality is, if you look at the ABS figures that came up today, the majority of people who die are the elderly with underlying disease. Now, you can die when you're younger, but it's basically people over the age of 80 or at least over the age of 70. Now, for them, it makes a lot of difference to have a third dose because you much you get extra levels of protection. But we don't have data, for instance, on children at all about third doses. And even to 20 and 30-year-olds, which are mainly the parents of school children, how much extra benefit you get from a third dose, um, it becomes fairly marginal. So to enforce that is quite a problem. I mean, so I actually think it's counterproductive to enforce these third dose mandates until we have much better data that makes a lot of difference. The reality is vaccines protect you. Um, they make a lot of difference to my risk of dying and getting seriously ill. Now, if I decided not to get vaccinated, and I would not recommend that to anybody, I might say, um, that's a choice you've made. Mm. I think it's a bad choice. But that's mainly the implications of you. If you're vaccinated, you are less in likely to get it and therefore less likely to spread it. But with Omicron, it's much less than I would have originally thought. It does decrease it, but it's not by 90 or 95 percent. You know, it's much less than that. So the main benefit of vaccination mm -hmm. is for the individual. So unless we've got hospital systems that are overwhelmed by people under the age of 50 um, who are only you know, double vaccinated versus triple vaccinated, I think these sort of mandates are counterproductive. And in a lot of ways, in fact, delaying your vaccines first, second, and probably to third might give you better lasting immunity. Mm -hmm. So we've got to be careful not to overdo this, wait for more data, particularly on people under the age of 50, before we enforce the mandates. It may be relevant in you know, aged care, for instance, but there's the residents we should be mandating it as much as the staff and maybe high-risk situations such as hospital or high-risk. But for the general community, I think we've got to be careful not to overdo this because we'll put people off rather than keep them on board. Thank you again for your usual uh, professional common sense. Professor Collingon, thank you.
All right, I want to bring you a, an important update, if I can, on the Sluggate affair here in Victoria. I'm referring, of course, to the scandal which saw the family-run catering company iCook Foods destroyed after a Dandenong Council worker allegedly planted a slug on the floor of their processing plant. Now, you'll remember that contracts held by iCook Foods to supply meals to aged care homes then instead went to competitors, including a catering business in which the Dandenong Council had become a stakeholder using, of course, public money. Now, the Herald Sun has revealed that Victoria Police found that the CEO of Dandenong Council, John Benny, committed an offence by discussing the Victorian Health Department's decision to close iCook Foods with a competitor before that decision was publicly announced. But we're told John Benny can't be charged because Victoria Police took too long to prosecute. In other words, they had a report that concluded Benny had done the wrong thing, but they didn't do anything about it. Honestly, this is what justice looks like in Victoria. You be the judge as to whether it's even justice at all. Moving to Sydney and a quick update on the count in Gladys Berejiklian's old state seat of Willoughby. The race has tightened significantly after pre-poll votes were tallied on Monday, with a swing against the Liberal Party and its candidate Tim James now at 19%. The little-known independent Larissa Penn is sitting on 32% of the first preference votes. Now, two important points. One, thousands and thousands of postal votes are yet to be counted. Traditionally, they favour the Liberal Party, but we'll see. And two, don't forget Willoughby has a history of tight races. As Channel 7's Jason Morrison pointed out today, Gladys Berejiklian only won Willoughby by 144 votes back in 2003, against then a very popular independent. That result took weeks to declare. I reckon we might be in the same sort of uh, delay here on this one as well. OK, after the break, James Morrow is going to pay tribute to the great PJ O'Rourke, who passed away overnight. See you soon. A troubled young woman, her evil parents. We never had any issues between us. Has justice been done? Uh, I'm in a prison. Join journalist Richard Gilliatt as he delves into one of Australia's most gripping cases. Shadow of Doubt, a new podcast investigation from The Australian. I cannot find one of these allegations that's possible. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Well, it's Wednesday. That means it's time for our international panel from Canberra, the Daily Telegraph's political editor, James Morrow, and from Adelaide, former senator, Sky News host, Corey Bernardi. Uh, gentlemen, this morning we woke up to the big news, of course, that the Queen's second son, Prince Andrew, has settled his civil sex abuse case with Virginia Guffrey. The settlement means the case can no longer go to a jury trial. Of course, fingers crossed it won't overshadow the Queen's jubilee throughout this year, but... Interesting for, for, for people at home watching and trying to fathom how this all works, Corey. The Prince has repeatedly said, I deny the allegations against me. I don't have any recollection of meeting this woman. It is going to spend what is about $14 million in our money settling the case. So how do people make heads or tails of this? Well, Peter, I think uh, a lot of people would be very confused about it. Now, I perfectly understand the need to reach an out-of-court settlement 
if it's the expedient thing to do. But, you know, for someone of such a high profile, it seems like a, a, a tacit admission that a lot of things would come out that they would rather didn't come out. It also raises the question about whether this was always about the money for, for Guffrey or not. It's a huge sum of funds. But I have to say, personally, I'm a bit disappointed. We we haven't uncovered the truth about Ghislaine Maxwell and uh, and Jeffrey Epstein. We haven't seen their client list. We haven't seen who's embroiled in all of this because the court documents for Maxwell's trial were sealed and we're not allowed to know. And uh, now this is not going to trial. So I think there is a very creepy, perverted sex ring that has been silenced and shut down. And that always, always makes me a bit uh, concerned about who may be involved. Yeah, look, I have to say I agree with you there, Corey, in the sense that I really don't think Epstein uh, committed suicide. It all just sounds a bit too peculiar. Uh, the involvement of the prince now is made go away with money. And, of course, Ghislaine Maxwell, you're right to point out those documents are sealed. We need more transparency here, don't we, James? Well, we really, really do. I mean, Peter, Corey, let's just think about this. In your entire lives reading the news, have you ever heard of a sex trafficking ring where the cops didn't take the client list, the people who were involved, when there's documentation of who was involved, and go and knock on every single door on that list and press charges and arrest and investigate and get to the bottom of who was victimizing who? It just does not stack up to me. So I agree with what Corey says. I think that it's, you know, there is a much bigger story here. Fine, it puts this away from Prince Andrew, but why do we, why are these documents sealed? What is going on here that with these, with this sex ring, out of all the underage sex rings in the world that the FBI and the Justice Department might investigate, this one, they just say, nope, we're just going to take the list, we're going to take the documents, and we're going to put them away and just forget it and not investigate it. Come on, does not stack up, Peter. Yeah, just have a think about all the very powerful people over the years that have been photographed uh, with Ghislaine Maxwell and Jeffrey Epstein. I think there you have your answer. Let's go to Ukraine, Corey. Tensions high. Uh, there's talk. The Russians are saying they've moved their soldiers away from the Ukraine border. President Biden says, oh, I'm not so sure. He thinks it's very much still a possibility that the Russians will invade Ukraine. Where's this headed? Oh, I wish I knew. Uh, Joe, according to Joe Biden, uh, it's scheduled for 10 o'clock tomorrow morning, I think. But, um, you know, it's this is, I think, Putin just playing a masterstroke. He's got some concessions from NATO that he wanted. There are going to be some changes, I believe, to the Ukrainian constitution. And uh, the world is has sort of capitulated, I think, to Putin's latest move. Now, if he withdraws for a little while, I think it's only a matter of time before he actually uh, uh, instigates a, a larger confrontation and I suspect the world will end up letting him get away with it. And what really worries me about that, quite frankly, is what that will do to embolden China and particularly their intentions upon Taiwan, Peter. Let's go to that sad news overnight, death of the great American satirist <clears throat> and writer PJ Rourke, James, irreverent writing, uh, fantastic wit, I, all sides of politics, love to read uh, PJ. Do you have a favourite of his many works? 
Oh, God, Peter, I mean, I don't even know where I begin to talk about uh, PGO O'Rourke. PGO O'Rourke really is quite legitimately, I would say, one of the reasons why I do what I do today. I grew up reading PGO O'Rourke, you know, in the 1980s and in the 1990s. I don't want to talk about his later years when he became, you know, weirdly very anti-Trump and all of that, but some of the stuff that he wrote was so funny, so irreverent. I remember in the 80s reading a piece he wrote uh, called Ship of Fools, and it was about going on this cruise up the Volga River in the then Soviet Union with a bunch of old lefties from the U.S. who, in his words, thought everything was better in the USSR, but they still brought their own toilet paper. And it was just, he had this way of skewering the left. And back then, when I was a kid, it said to me, you know, the right, this is where the fun people are. This is where the irreverent people are. And now, 40 years later, I'm looking at it, it's like, well, you know, the left is still really po-faced and humorless, and I'm afraid that we're not going to have uh, O'Rourke's voice to uh, poke fun at them and deflate them anymore. It's a real shame. Corey? Yeah, I agree, actually, with, um, with those sentiments from James. I mean, in the end, uh, great people inspire others to follow in their footsteps, and it doesn't mean you can match up to their talent or their wit or their sarcasm, but his observations stroke got right to the heart of the human condition and about how how dogmatic and idiotic the political left are. He used to have a laugh at himself and his own his own issues. I could identify with a lot of that. It was just beautiful to to uh, read his writings and he'll be missed, but you know what his legacy will live on through people like James and a whole bunch of others who have been inspired by his works. Peter. James is a beautiful writer. You're absolutely right. James, Mara Corribonati, thank kind. you for your time. <laughs> and now I've just been reminded of a sequence or a chain of events uh, out of uh, Parliament House that I got wrong before. I want to correct that. Alan Tudge put up Rochelle Miller to be promoted. At the time, that was all correct, but it wasn't uh, approved then and there under Malcolm Turnbull. Again, we're told he knew about the affair, but the promotion that was sought was not successful. However, she was promoted. She was promoted when she moved ministers a little later on after that. So that's where I got the sequence out of kilter. Anyway, after the break, your favourite, Kel Richards with Words Matter. News doesn't have to be boring. The Brits have given Prince Harry a new nickname after yet another tell-all interview. Oh, God, is it the ginger winder? <laughs> Let the team at news.com.au get you up to speed each day with their podcast from the newsroom. A couple were busted joining the Mile High Club. Well, I guess they can't fly virgin anymore. Politics, sport, red carpets, royals. Get all the goss in just a few minutes. Follow from the newsroom wherever you get your podcast from. Right, without further ado, let's bring in your favourite, Kel Richards, joining me from Sydney, as he does every Wednesday. Words of the week. Now, normally they're Kel's words. This week I've got a word I want to get into. We've heard it a lot with the floor crosses, Kel, over the past two weeks, and it's a term moderate, these left-leaning liberals. I know some call them modern liberals. When I was at university studying politics, we called them wets. What's the difference? Uh, the reason you called them wets was because of Margaret Thatcher. She coined the word in the 1980s to describe the people in her party she saw as being soft and having no backbone. What she was saying basically was, these people don't stand for anything. They will flow into the... Like water, they'll flow into the shape of whatever container they're in. Uh, you think of a classic moderate like Malcolm Turnbull. 
Graham Richardson told us he offered himself to the Labor Party before he offered himself to the Liberal Party. He would flow into the shape of whatever container he was in. Now, that's, that's what she meant by wets. Moderates, are, in a sense, are slightly different because they've really got a foot in the left-wing camp, and for probably both feet. What I don't understand, maybe you can answer this, Peter, why don't they call mm. themselves the left of the Liberal Party? I mean, the Labor Party doesn't have a moderate faction. It's got a left and a right. So why do they call themselves moderates? Why not just honestly say, look, we're the left wing of the Liberal Party, that's who we are? That's got me puzzled. I think they think that moderate is softer, more benign, not to be worried about, not to be concerned about. It's a bit like the word conservative. This is another one I'll throw to you. I mean, the word conservative has got a real pejorative taint, but, you know, the, the word conservative just means you believe in our society, things in policy terms or values that are there are worth conserving. And it doesn't mean that conservatives don't don't like change or won't change. It's just that they're slow to change. They want the case made uh, that change would be better. So that's another one too. Well, it's a very strong... And you're right, exactly right about that. And the case is a very strong one. The word is a very strong one. A conservative means someone who sees themselves as being part of a chain of generations. They've come from people who've given them a really worthwhile heritage and their job, their responsibility, their task is to preserve the best of what they've inherited and pass it on to the next lot of generations. They see themselves standing in that chain of generations. It's not resistance to change, it's seeing a bigger picture. Mm. People who are not conservative are pretty prisoners of the zeitgeist. Zeitgeist is a lovely German word that means the spirit of the time. Zeit means time, geist means ghost or spirit. The spirit of the times. And people who are not conservative are prisoners of the moment they live in. The latest fad is what's got to happen. That's the change that's got to happen because it's the fad, it's fashionable now. Conservatives are not prisoners of the zeitgeist, not prisoners of the moment in which they live. They see the bigger picture. They see the stretch of generations. So it's not resistance mm. to change. It's seeing a bigger picture. That's what the word conservative means. And I think it's a very strong word. You need to be part of a rebranding exercise for the word conservative and take it back uh, from the left. Now, this is one I fall into this trap all the time. I call the green left the green left as opposed to the socialist left. And of course, you know, the green term sort of softens them about the environment, but there's a hell of a lot more on their agenda than just the environment, isn't there? There is. Uh, the expression green left was first applied to them by conservatives uh, in order to say, OK, they look like green parties. They say they only care about cleaning up the environment, but beware they are the green left. They, some of them have adopted it, but mostly their own official name for themselves is eco-socialists. In other words, the, the way they're trying to present themselves is the environment, at least as they understand it, gives them an excuse to exercise a lot of authority and dismantle everything that's running now because it was everything that's running now got it all wrong. Capitalism got it all wrong. Capitalism polluted the planet. Capitalism is warming the planet, all the rest of it. So by... by choosing to call themselves eco-socialists rather than just socialists, they're pretending they've got a good environmental reason for imposing their will on everyone else and replacing the present system with a totally different set of values and a totally different set of institutions. So it's, an, it's not This is why words matter. Yep, it's, it's, it's radical not is at what all. it is. I'm going to have to leave it there, but I want people to go to my Instagram, Peter Cridlin AO, Tell us, Kel and I, what words you want us to focus on next week. We'll do it all the time. Lovely having you on the show as always, Kel. See you next week.
All right, that's it from me. Back here tomorrow night at six, here is Andrew Bolt. Hi, it's Gary Jubelin here. Do you want a real and raw look inside the world of crime? Well, then check out my podcast, I Catch Killers, where I interview people from all sides of the law. I draw my firearm and I went into fight mode. I wanted to find and confront this gunman. I'm, I'm not getting verbal, am I? <laughs> I shouldn't have trusted you. See, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to open my mind up to uh, defence I know, it's just begging to be said. Yeah. Fair call, fair call. We have amazing guests every week. Search for iCatch Killers wherever you get your podcasts.